Hello, everyone. Uh, today, I'm going to be sharing with you a little bit about my new book called Higher Self-Expression, How to Become an Artist of Possibility. I'm looking forward to sharing some of what it's about with you because, as I said in my email, I honestly do think this is the most important book that I've written to date because it represents the conclusions I've come to so far about why spiritual life matters and how it works. And I think it's quite different than a lot of things I've written, although many of the ideas in here, you know, you have, uh, have their origins in, in things I've been teaching for some time. But, but I think there's a very, there's a different slant here. And I think it's an important one. And so today I'm going to start with some of the initial, the initial opening parts of the book for you. And essentially, the big insight that I want people to get in, in the beginning part of the book, and then what the whole book will be about, is that genius arrives to us in energetic bursts of novelty and insight. What we call genius, what people have called genius, are these somewhat inexplicable moments of brilliant clarity that just appear at certain points. Nobody feels that they can manufacture genius. You can't deduce genius because it's new, it's novel. That's what makes it genius. But it does appear that some people have greater access to genius than others. And, and so the reason why I wrote this book the reason why I think it's so important is because my orientation toward spirituality has always been incarnational. So I'm, I know that many of you know me already. For those of you who don't, I dedicated my life a long time ago to exclusively to spiritual pursuits. For 20 years living in a, a kind of modern spiritual practice community, where I could do practice to my heart's content. And it was in that context that I first started teaching meditation. And when that community disbanded, I continued on both in my own ongoing explorations of spirit and also with my teaching work, teaching meditation, teaching spiritual awakening, teaching mystical philosophy uh, and writing writing a lot and writing more and more and, and always wanting to find clearer and clearer ways of expressing what I was discovering in the hopes that it will benefit many people. But my orientation has always been incarnational in the sense that I always felt compelled to become a more open and clear vessel for the mysteries of being uh, to arrive into the world. I always uh, intuitively felt that the purpose of, of spiritual pursuit, the purpose of, of awakening, was that something wanted to be born into the world and we have the opportunity to be the vessels for that, for something that you could call a higher self, 
or higher consciousness. Now, as I said, the book is called Higher Self-Expression. And I left that a little bit ambiguous. I didn't put a hyphen between self and expression to necessarily connect them because I feel that the book could either be higher self-expression or higher self-expression. And essentially they're the same, but I wanted to leave a little bit of ambiguity because there's a little bit of ambiguity in reality because I do feel that we have a higher self and we have access to a higher self. I also feel that that higher self that we have access to is us. So there's a certain amount of paradox involved there uh, where we both uh, are the vessel for that to express itself in the world and we are that which is expressed. And, and there's something of that paradox runs through the whole book from beginning to end. So my orientation has always been incarnational. It's always been important to me that these higher potentials find expression in the world. That isn't necessarily everyone's orientation, although I think it happens anyway. You know, even in, even in the case of great saints uh, like Ramana Maharshi, who might not speak for years at a time, there's still an expression of some divinity even in the non-activity. But for me, there's always been uh, an energetic dynamic that wants to actively express. That's why I teach, that's why I write. This isn't something that I, you know, I feel like I chose to do. I, I didn't look at a bunch of options and think this is the best one. It just is a compulsion. It's something that I uh, haven't really ever uh, had an option not to do. So as the book opens, uh, I speak about Gertrude Stein. Gertrude Stein is an experimental writer, uh, someone I've gotten very interested in. Uh, I've always had a distant fascination with her, but I got very interested in her about a year ago uh, when I started to read more about what she was excited about, what, she, what was motivating her experimental writing. I always had a, a romantic love for Gertrude Stein because uh, she was, uh, an, an American author who lived in Paris in a, in a flat that became the center of a, of a group of writers and artists that included people like Picasso and Matisse and F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway. I mean, just an amazing collection of, of writers and artists of the time were revolving around Gertrude Stein's circle. So I was always you know, being having artistic and literary inclinations myself, I was always very fascinated by whatever, whatever it was that was going on there. Um, but later I found out that when Gertrude Stein was in college, she went to Radcliffe College, she worked under William James, who happens to be one of my heroes, the American psychologist, William James. He was, she was kind of one of his favorite students uh, and he was definitely her favorite teacher uh, and mentor. And they were doing experiments in automatic writing. Automatic writing simply means having a pencil and, and, and letting the writing happen without your brain interceding. 
Uh, and Gertrude Stein, James was fascinated by this. Gertrude Stein was fascinated by this. And she did a lots of experiments where she was doing the automatic writing. And she claimed, and I have no reason to disbelieve her, that she got so good at automatic writing that she could literally watch her hand write things and have no idea what was going to come out until that she saw it on the paper. Now, in the end, she kind of determined that there wasn't much, the writing itself didn't have much value. Uh, she wasn't saying much. Those automatic writings weren't saying very much. But if you ever read any of her experimental writing, uh, some of it is kind of mimicking what she saw the automatic writing produced. It's, you know, her, some of her writing is almost impossible to read. Uh, you know, it's so repetitive. It's like the same sentence written six times with slight variations, but that's what she saw her hand would do. It would write the same thing over and over again with slight variations. Uh, and she felt that that was somehow, that, that was indicating something about the way our brains worked. So I tried for this book to read Gertrude Stein. I did read some. I wanted to get through a whole book, but I actually found it impossible. Um, it just, it's so experimental. But what's interesting is that she was inspiring, you know, such great writers as Ernest Hemingway and James Joyce. And part of what she was inspiring them with was to write stream of consciousness. Uh, and part of her idea was that if you allow yourself to express spontaneously, something can come through you that's not coming from you. That, that was the crux of what was so exciting to her and to William James. That's the first insight that I want to share in the book, that it's possible for you to act in such a way that something pours through you that isn't coming from you. It's not coming from your brain. It's not coming from what you know. It's not coming from your experience. It's influenced by your brain. It's influenced by what you know. It's influenced by what you experience, but it's not coming from that. All of that become sort of part of the medium that, that some higher self starts to work with in your writing, in your painting, in your dance, in whatever it is that is the, the medium of expression. And the reason why I'm so excited about this book is because in a nutshell, that is what I think is so valuable about spiritual life. That right now, the way that we are conditioned to be, what expresses itself through us is mainly us. And us means the limited sense of self, the personality and the person that assumes it was born on our birthday and will live until the day we die physically. And that the sum total of that experience of this physical existence is the sum total of who we are. And of course, that's pretty, it's a pretty magnificent thing, uh, a human person. You know, even, even that 
limited sense of a human person is a magnificent thing and, it, and incredible things get created that way. But what Gertrude Stein was excited about, what William James was excited about is that we are, we actually have access to much more than that. And, and that greater potentiality that we have access to can express itself through us if we figure out how to allow it. And Gertrude Stein was very busy trying to figure out how to allow it. Now, the, the words that she used mainly is genius. She was fascinated by genius. She considered herself a genius. Not everybody thought that was a great idea, but she did. She, she, she considered herself to be a genius. She considered herself to be capable of recognizing the genius in others. And she has a pretty good track record of, of, of actually doing that. I mean, she was collecting Picasso and Matisse and a host of other painters way, you know, when they were all starving and when everybody thought their paintings were garbage, she was buying them, her and her brother in Paris, they were buying these paintings, you know, and they were supporting these artists. They had some money from their inheritance and they were supporting a lot of these artists and buying paintings that really nobody thought had any value at all. And she was convinced that there was real genius in them. And lo and behold, that's how it turned out. So there's some evidence that her self-assessment of, of being a genius and being able to recognize genius uh, was actually true. So in terms of the, the automatic, you know, her interest in automatic writing, she and William James both had this idea of the bottom nature of our being. And the way that I would describe that is there is part of our nature as a human being, which is simply habits unfolding, habits that we have either acquired through our personal experience, so personal habits, or cultural habits that we've just absorbed them from our culture. And those habits just enact themselves over and over and over again. And those of us who meditate will see when you sit in meditation, and you resist the temptation to do anything at all. So you just rest and relax. Now, when we do that in meditation, what we all want is for our brains to stop. And, and on rare occasions that does happen, especially if you're on you know, a long retreat for a month or two. But in, in, the, in the ordinary everyday meditation, you know, where we're living a busy life and then we take 20 minutes off to meditate, it's very unlikely that your mind is gonna just be so cooperative that it just stops during those 20 minutes. And it's like driving a car down, down the highway at 80 miles an hour and then taking your foot off the gas. The car doesn't just screech to a halt because you've stopped feeding it gasoline. It'll slow down, but it takes a while. So what you find when you meditate and you resist the temptation to do anything is that everything keeps happening. Now, unfortunately, what I have found 
having taught meditation now in this form for, oh, probably a good 15, approaching 20 years, is that a lot of people just give up at that point. And they give up because they think they're doing it wrong. Because they think that when they meditate, their mind should stop, which I can understand why they would want that. Uh, but it's not what happens. What, what people miss if they give up at that point is they miss the miracle. Right? There's a miracle that, that's being displayed for you. When, you. when you sit in meditation and you make the effort to resist the temptation to do anything and you see that everything keeps going, You know, you could draw the conclusion, I must be doing it wrong, or this is too hard for me. That's the conclusion a lot of people draw after a few attempts, and they say, well, this is, meditation is too hard for me, I can't do it. But the other way you can look at that is, is you, you resist the temptation to do anything, everything keeps going, and you realize, oh, I was never doing any of that. It was all just happening. It's not me. And that is the miraculous insight that meditation can give you. And some of you, I'm sure, have experienced it. Uh, others may, have, may not have. But when you experience that, it is shocking. Because you realize that you were never in there doing all that stuff. And the idea that you were in there doing it is just another habitual way of seeing yourself that that also is not you doing it. And so William James as a psychologist and then his student, Gertrude Stein, realized that, as, as William James said it, 99% of who we are, and then he said, well, maybe 999,000th of who we are is just unfolding habits. That's all it is. It's just habits unfolding. The vast majority of, of what we are, of what we see, of what we experience, of what our life is, of, of, of who we think, who we are, is just unfolding habits. Personal habits and cultural habits, just going and going and going. So you might find that utterly depressing. Oh my God, almost all of who we are is habits. William James and Gertrude Stein found that incredibly exciting for two reasons. One, James was really into the fact that we can change those habits. And he said, if anyone realized how much their life could change by changing their habits, they would get started today you know, energetically and vigorously. Because those habits, that bedrock, that ground of habit is, is how your life emerges on top of. So one source of excitement is that, that those habits can change. There's another source of excitement that James was into and that Gertrude Stein was very into, which is that even though 90 let's say that 999 parts out of a thousand is habit, there's still 
the one part in a thousand that's not habit. And that part is thrilling. Whatever is that little bit that's not habit is thrilling. And as, as William James would, lay, would point out throughout his lifetime, essentially he felt that psychology, its, it's, it's highest priority should be focused on that little tiny part of us that's not habit. What is that part? And, and James, I think in some future uh, call like this, I will uh, share with you some of James's ideas about what that, what's going on there. But right now, I just want to say Gertrude Stein's thought about that is that that is genius. That's where genius comes from. Where does it come from? This whole book, Higher Self-Expression, is all about that little part of us that is genius. And it's about essentially two things. How do we gain greater access to that? How do we make that 0.001% of us become 0.005% or maybe 0.9%? You know, how, how much can we open to genius, to novelty, to the kinds of brilliant flashes of insight that bring something that has nothing to do with our habitual patterns of thought and feeling. So how do we gain access to genius is part of this, is, is a part of this book and, and also how lots of different people have thought about that. And then the other exploration of the book is where does genius come from? When we have these moments of genius, of clarity, where ideas come to us that, that have no precedent. You see, this is the thing about geniuses, it's unprecedented. It's not like, oh, I'm, I know X, Y, and Z, and therefore this is a natural extension of what I already know. This is an unprecedented flash of <gasps> suddenly seeing something that you never saw before. Where does that come from? And again, in the book, we explore that. I explore different people who've had different angles on that. And I really try to go a whole gambit of uh, people that I find fascinating expressions of genius. So in some of them are spiritual people like uh, Thomas Keating, the Catholic monk or Ramana Maharshi <clears throat> or Ramakrishna, uh, great Hindu saints. Others are literary figures like uh, Anais Nin and Gertrude Stein herself, of course. Uh, uh, and the writer, the science fiction writer, Philip K. Dick, and others are philosophers, mystics. Uh, there's even one big wave surfer, uh, actually maybe two big wave surfers in there, uh, but one in particular, Jeffrey Clark, who discovered a wave called Maverick off the coast of San Francisco. And his story which I wanted to include because I wanted to really expand how we think of genius. His story is utterly fascinating. Uh, and so in the book, that's what I'm exploring. How do we gain greater access to genius? And where does genius come from? What, what and, and I'll fast forward to, to sort of my high level conclusion, which is that we live in, a universe which is a living conscious being. 
We don't live in a universe that is just an, a place of dead, empty space full of rocks and other stuff. We live in, in inside of a vast, unified, living, conscious being. And at its core, it is awake, it's compassionate, it's wise, far beyond the, the personal sense of compassion and wisdom uh, that we experience when we are exclusively identified with just this one birth. But we, in our current form as human beings, are in constant energetic contact with the, with the living being of, of reality, of existence. And the, and, and the reason that I know that we're in living contact with that being, energetic contact with that being all the time is because we're alive. Where does this life come from? That's, that's in, the, in the introduction of the book, I asked that question. Where does this all come? Look at, there's life, there's movement, there's, there's consciousness, there's awareness. That, where does that come from? You know, it doesn't come from, from the meat inside my body. It, it's inherent in existence. And so we're in constant energetic contact. And yet there are moments for various reasons when that channel opens and we get some flash of insight. That's what we call spiritual realization. Suddenly, bam, we get hit. It's like in the, in the general murkiness of life, suddenly a lightning flash illuminates the landscape and it's a shocking realization of knowing that can occur and it can happen for shorter or longer periods of time. But there are other times when, when that channel opens up and it's, and maybe it, it's not something we would call a spiritual realization, but maybe it's, maybe it's an insight, uh, a profound insight about what I should do. Maybe it's a profound insight about, uh, about a creative project, about a, about a book I should write or a painting I should paint. So I want to connect this to this idea of habit and, and the excitement that Gertrude Stein was feeling. In the book, I talk about John Dewey, another philosopher, a friend of our colleague of William James's, but younger. And John Dewey shares the same basic idea that we are the unfolding of habit. And we can see this in our own life very easily. You know, we wake up every morning, we take a shower, we get dressed, have breakfast, walk out the door. We don't really remember doing any of it. It all just happens. It's all just the unfolding of habits. And we've all had the experience uh, of going through our morning routine in our normal unconscious way. And suddenly, you know, we go to walk out the door and realize we don't have our keys. And when we recognize that we don't have our keys and our habitual pattern of being is disruptive, suddenly there's a little bit of a burst of consciousness. <gasps> I have to find my keys. 
and now I have to I have to break out of my habitual my habit pattern in order to consciously search for the keys. But then once I find the keys, I slide right back into my habits. I go back into the car, turn on the key, drive to work, don't remember any of it. So what the way Dewey talked about that and what I find fascinating about that is that genius, what, what Gertrude Stein would call genius, Dewey called uh, the energetic impulse of, of consciousness. That is what life uses when her harmonious patterns of being are disrupted. You see, as long as, as long as everything's moving smoothly, life doesn't bother with too much consciousness. It's not necessary. Everything's going smoothly. And consciousness is expensive. It's, it takes an enormous amount of energy. We all know our brains take up an enormous amount of our actual physical energy. Being conscious and being awake is expensive energetically. And so nature seems to want mainly for us to act out of habit. But then in the course of life, sometimes habits get disrupted, in which case she zaps you with, with higher consciousness, with knowingness. And sometimes habits don't get disrupted, but they, they end up becoming dysfunctional for some reason. Circumstances change and the, the old habits don't work anymore. So this is what Gertrude Stein was trying to do in her automatic writing. She was, she was trying to write, and this is why it's so hard to read her stuff. It's not because she's a bad writer. You know, I mean, she was, she was an incredibly accomplished, brilliant writer, but she was trying to write in a way that you couldn't go unconscious reading. That was her whole point because she thought, well, if you, now it's very interesting because usually when writers are writing fiction for entertainment, for instance, they want to keep the writing as, as smooth as possible so that you can become unconscious, so that you can forget that you're reading and you can just get lost in the story. And, that, and the, the idea of good writing is that the writing will never get in the way. It, it, will not, it won't become so uh, uh, disruptive that it pops you out of the story. Gertrude Stein was trying to do exactly the opposite. She was writing in a way that would never let you get into the story. It would never let you go unconscious because you had to keep reading the same line over and over again with slight variations. You had to live through the sort of mild distress of wondering what the heck she was doing and, why she, and, and if she had actually anything to say, but that wasn't her point. Her whole point, and she was such a central figure of the avant-garde movement in Paris in the, 19, in the early 1900s. Her whole point was, and the whole point of that movement was, and something that I think we can all relate to, is the habit patterns of our culture and our society need to be changed. Now, she may have had different reasons for believing that at the time than we have now. She, she wasn't facing climate change, for instance. But she realized that the, the habit patterns, the, the materialism uh, of our culture, the, the narcissism 
of Western culture, that these things needed to, the, the, the lack of uh, what she saw as a lack of depth, a lack of real care for finer, higher things in life, that this needed to change. And, and the only thing that could change it would be these bursts of genius because nothing in the system can change the system because it's all part of the system. That was the problem. You know, no, no matter how much you might want to change the system from the inside, it won't ultimately work unless there's access to something beyond. There has to be something outside that can add novelty. Otherwise, your best efforts at change over time will reveal themselves to be a, a, just a variation of the same. And so when she was writing, when Picasso was painting, when the various people around her were creating art, part of what was motivating them was wanting to create art that would be positively disruptive to people's patterns of perception so that it would wake them up as Dewey would say, so that it would stop the habitual flow of assuming you always know what's going on and just moving from one moment to the next. And, and, and that stopping, that little gap where you get, oh, what's going on here? What is, why does this painting look like this? Why, does this? why is she writing like this? That little gap that gets created when, you, when your, your flow gets disruptive is a gap where genius can come in where insight can enter your being. And so that's what, that's what Gertrude Stein was, was doing with, with her art. That's what she was eliciting in the people around her. That's what reading all about that was, was what started to get me very excited about writing a book uh, and and from Gertrude Stein, the book just kept unfolding and, and the different things that I, uh, everything that I was researching led me to another thing. And I, I found these weaving patterns around the idea of genius that just went through everything, that went through art and literature and painting, but it also went through all kinds of different spiritual forms, different spiritual teachers. As I said, even big wave surfing, uh, has not just geniuses, but geniuses who had theories, had ideas about how genius happens, uh, and that's what I've uh, that's what I've collected. So today, I really wanted to start with with this this initial point of the book, which is that we live in a conscious, a vastly conscious, unbroken oneness that is a living being, that is existence, that is, you know, what in a spiritual context you might call divinity or God. And that that is what animates our life, that is what animates our mind and our thinking. But that it's, it's often satisfied with harmonious flow but in instances where that harmony is disruptive, it will inject consciousness. And so like Gertrude Stein, I feel like we need 
society needs, humanity needs, this planet needs some bigger injections of consciousness. And, you know, the planet knows this too. So from one point of view, the planet is going to disrupt our habits. You know, COVID-19, for instance, is a massive disruption of habit. Uh, and and it, it, it is and it will potentially awaken us to novel ideas. But through our spiritual pursuits, through our artistic pursuits, we can become more open to genius. We can become vessels that are more receptive, more available. And that's what I feel the whole point of spiritual life is. So I think that when I, I do a call like this again, I want to continue on from here and speak a little bit more about William James because Gertrude Stein was distinctly avoidant of mystical things. But William James was quite the opposite. You know, he was a rock star philosopher and academic who ran headlong into mystical things. Uh, and he was famous enough and popular enough that he could do it and not get fired. Uh, so he became the president of the American Psychical Research Society and, and was researching seances and mediums of all kinds and, and developed a lot of very fascinating ideas about where genius comes from. Gertrude Stein never really quite, she doesn't really go in that direction. You know, she doesn't go in the direction of where does genius come from. She mostly speaks about how we can positively disrupt our habits so that we have greater access to genius. But William James is fascinated by where genius comes from. What is it that is expressing itself through us in these moments of genius? Where is this wisdom and compassion and higher consciousness coming from? Uh, I will end with that. In the meantime, please do read the book. <laughs> and if you do, I would love to hear from you. So I'm always available. You can always contact me by email. I'd love to hear what you think uh, as you read through it. And it's been absolutely wonderful to, uh, to share with you. So.